Welcome to Are You a Robot? I'm your host, Demetrios Brinkman, and today we are talking to Amina Al-Sharif, the Chief Innovation Officer at Anno.ai. Wow, what a conversation. It is not very often that I am able to come here and give an introduction about a conversation such as the one that I had with Amina. It made me really reflect on a lot of the opinions and a lot of the beliefs that I have around war and the U.S., my home country, our ability and our way that we engage with the rest of the world and the way that we, we have been fighting wars for the last 20 years. And... Talking with Amina, I got to see a different perspective that I didn't necessarily think about, that I wasn't privy to before this conversation. And so it was wonderful for me because I got to put myself in her shoes and see how she looks at the world and see how she looks at the way that we're using technology within the greater defense of the U.S. and defending the U.S. from afar, as we call it. This was a conversation about the ethics of war, the ethics of using technology in war. We talked a lot about how she was working on Project Maven, which was a project in Google. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It got a lot of attention because people did not like, Googlers did not like the fact that they found out that Google was engaged with the U.S. government and the Department of Defense. And she was on that project. She was working on that project. And she also had served in the military. And so this is an incredible conversation. She raised so many points of gray areas and how complex this world that we live in is. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm Demetrios Brinkman, your host, and today we are talking with Amina Al-Sharif, the Chief Innovation Officer of Anno.ai. If you're new to the podcast, we really try to tackle some of the greatest questions that stem from the ethics of technology. And the way that we're doing that is by bringing on some of the best and brightest minds in their respective fields to talk to me and hash out some of these greater questions that we're facing as a society. Last part I want to highlight before we jump into this conversation is we have got an incredible sponsor and I want to give them a huge shout out. Thank you to Ethics Grade for being the sponsor of this podcast from the beginning Ethics Grade, for all of those that do not know, is an ESG ratings firm, but they're really taking ESG to a new level. They're looking at the AI ethics of different companies. They're looking at data governance of different companies. You can go onto their website and you can see what different companies' ratings are. You can download one of their scorecards and check it against what you would have thought they would have gotten as a rating. There's ratings all the way from A to F. Actually, it's R is even worse than F. And I think you'll be surprised if you play around on there a little bit and see what different companies you think 
are doing well, see what different companies you think are not doing well and see how they actually stack up against this research that Ethics Grade has so diligently gone out there and sourced and produced for us. So that's all we have today for the intro. If you enjoy this conversation, we would appreciate a follow or a subscribe, whatever the tool that you're using to listen or watch this on. It helps us out a lot if you can give us that like or that vote of confidence. Now let's get into the conversation with Amina. Are you a robot? want to start though you have a colorful background you've done so much you've come to the u.s or i guess you went to the u.s migrated to the u.s then you joined the army or navy sorry i can't remember which one exactly it is but you were in the military and then you worked for google can you give us a bit of a rundown on how that all happened because i find it fascinating this progression yeah um so Born and raised in Cairo, Egypt, um, to a a very strict Muslim Egyptian father and a half American, half Egyptian Christian mother. So I had an interesting, interesting time growing up, Um, decided I wanted to join the military um, post 9-11. Everyone was watching it as it happened all over the world, but especially in Egypt, because some of the key players and the key planners in that uh, 9-11 attack were Egyptian. Um, so there was some kind of, you know, fire inside me that was like, this is not right. Um, and that was about the time I started studying U.S. history as part of uh, an American school that I was going to for my high school years. And um, so then I decided to try to apply to the academies. So West Point and Naval Academy. Um, I got bopped around for a while because, you know, I have fluency in four languages At the end of the day, I decided to just go the ROTC route, which is essentially going to a regular college. Um, And what the the Army did is they hosted my residency and they hosted uh, me getting my U.S. passport. Um, So I immigrated to the U.S. and joined the Army at uh, 17. They probably don't know this, but I did forge my parents' signatures on my Army contract because they were not there. (laughs) And I was below the age of 18. Um, so the, the army essentially afforded me the opportunity to go to school. So I was, uh, not necessarily well positioned where I was at in Egypt to go to school and really have like a very robust career in life. It's, Mm. it's very common there for women to get married at a very young age and start having children at a young age. Um, and that's what I was trying to escape part of what I was trying to escape. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, did three years of college uh, overall, uh, moved around from, started off at the University of Colorado at Boulder and then moved to Ole Miss, uh, University of Mississippi. Um, And I I left University of Colorado at Boulder actually due to a bullying incident uh, that Mm. was around my ethnicity and the fact that I had joined the military. I don't know if you know much about Boulder, but it's a very liberal city. Um, so I was very, it was a lot, very fast when I first Mm. showed up to the U S, uh, between the army culture and getting immersed in that. And then, um, you know, the, the liberal state in which Boulder was in where I was first exposed to like drugs and alcohol. (laughs) And, um, so yeah, after, after college I commissioned, I had a 
pretty traumatic experience with the army during college. Um, I think a lot of it stemmed from the fact that I am Arab and African American, and I did kind of immigrate in, uh, and I was considered an international student. So there was a lot of discrimination um, that I experienced on the ROTC side of the house, and then later what they call the leadership uh, development assessment course, which is where you go to become an officer, right? Either pass or fail. Um, so I ended up going into the reserves and in the reserves, uh, I wanted to be a military intelligence officer. I wanted to be a spy, right? Like I thought that was super cool. Um, and they basically told me due to my background and having grown up in Egypt that I would never get a security clearance, which is something that you have to have in order to become a spy. Um, so after a year of waiting, uh, I was so defeated. I decided to go into the signal Corps. And the Signal Corps is essentially the technical uh, cadre of the Army. Uh, So my technical career was 100% an accident. Uh, It was not meant to happen. (laughs) That was not what what I wanted for myself. Um, But as I started going through the basic training, which didn't require a clearance, um, I eventually did receive uh, a top-secret clearance and was picked up by uh, a Joint Special Operations Unit. Uh, straight out of that that school experience so that's kind of how my my career launched if you will Mm -hmm. um in in kind of uh, a nutshell um i ended up you spent time you went to afghanistan if i'm not mistaken yeah so i my first trip was actually to iraq i had just turned 21 um that was my first deployment uh was was to baghdad uh, and then my second deployment was um, to Afghanistan the following year. Uh, and then the year after that, I did uh, several deployments, uh, one to Iraq, one to Syria, one to Turkey. And then I actually ended up in Tel Aviv. Um, so I kind of went all over the place for the last tour that I had. It, was this as a secret agent or was this in the infantry? What did these tours look like (laughs) so um i was still doing technical stuff right so um secret agent is a very fluffy term right (laughs) um there there are lots of there's lots of literature out there about what secret agents actually really do and at the end of the day we're all kind of broken down into our job functions so it's not really anything super secret in the sense of like, we all have jobs to do. And my job was uh, what I would best probably describe as a technical operator. Um, so I worked on anything from hunting down people on social media and determining which people we needed to go out and strike and kill. Uh-huh. So that was like a very direct mission that I had. Um, and due to that job that I had initially, um, that's where my need to learn how to code actually came about. Um, I was dealing with networks that were more than 80,000 people or entities, you know, long. And you can only do so much manually. Um, so at one point in my career, um, I actually was was doing my skydiving certification and ended up breaking my back. Uh, so I was bedridden for about three and a half months, and that's when I learned how to code. Um, but that was kind of my my main main job was to find bad people on social media and hand them over to people that would go and then execute on, on those targets. So. Okay. So before we jump to this next phase of your life, when you started working at Google, can you talk a little bit about the feelings 
that you were having as, because if I understand this correctly, when you were in Afghanistan and when you went to Iraq, I think you put it in the article, by this time it was like the forgotten war. And yeah. we don't need to talk about anything about how the, uh, the mistakes that were made when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan recently. But I think at the time that you were there, it was already clear that people stopped wanting to hear about Afghanistan. And then you as someone who joined the military after 9-11 to come to the U.S. and fight for a country, uh, learn from the military and then go and fight for this country that is not your home, but you felt very strongly for. And then it was like people in the U S didn't want to hear about this. So I find that to be something it's almost like heartbreaking in a way, but uh, I want to know what, what were these feelings that you were going through as you were looking at like the effectiveness and what you were tasked to do? Yeah, so for my initial tour, it was kind of really just more of an eye-opening experience. I was very young. Um, and of course, my initial tour was actually spent hunting Iranians. So as ISIS came to its peak, I was not assisting with the ISIS mission at all. I was sitting there hunting Iranians that were essentially running the government in Baghdad. Um, so it was a very surreal experience to be involved with that because I was fighting this kind of silent war that wasn't really a war that was, you know, well known or, or really, I mean, there's been plenty that's talked about, uh, about that effort, but it wasn't really in the public eye at all. No one was really concerned with it. My experience in Afghanistan was the most eye-opening experience. Um, it was very strange for someone like me with my skill set to end up in Afghanistan. I do not speak Pashto or Dari. I do speak Farsi. Um, but I somehow ended up in Afghanistan doing the technical mission there. And several things happened right before I went there and then while I was there. Um, the first thing that happened right before I went there was the Doctors Without Borders attack, uh, which I do mention in my article. Um, <clears throat> essentially was a strike on a Doctors Without Borders location within Afghanistan. And the strike was conducted on intelligence that indicated that there were some high-level Taliban members that were actually receiving treatment at the facility. Uh, there are public news, news articles that later, and actually public statements that the Taliban made that later confirmed that there were individuals of high risk uh, and high-level leadership from their organization there. Um, but what really tore me apart was actually my best friend that I'd grown up with in Egypt. He is becoming a doctor in the UK, and his goal is to actually do tours with Doctors Without Borders. And so suddenly there was this very surreal moment of like, wow, that could have been my friend who was there getting paid, you know, very little to help people who are in dire need for medical attention. And here I am on the other side of the missile, essentially determining that it's an, an acceptable loss of human life for all these civilians to die in order for us to get some very high-level leadership. Arguably, those Taliban leaders that were there had bloods of hundreds, if not thousands, of people on their hands. So that's when I started experiencing this dilemma, right, of like, what is right and what is wrong? And it's so gray, even when you're there on the front line, you get to see it firsthand. Um, 
later on in that deployment, I also witnessed the Women's March. It kind of coincided with the Hazara March against uh, a pipeline that was being put in, uh, that the government was putting in through Hazara land. Hazaras are a minority in Afghanistan. They're very persecuted. Uh, they are, you know, killed left and right all the time just due to the fact that they are Shiites uh, and due to their ethnic backgrounds. Um, and there were some images from the Women's March at one point that I realized, you know, these women had decided to march on Kabul, which is arguably one of the highest threat cities in Afghanistan, at the risk of their own life for the sake of making sure that they had access to education. And it was in that moment where I started realizing that I was asking myself questions, right? Like, is what I'm doing helping these people the most? Or is what I'm doing something else, right? Like, what, what do these people really need in order for peace to be achieved in Afghanistan, but also peace to be achieved at home in the United States, right? Because some of these issues that we're tackling as the United States getting involved in foreign wars are issues that are so deeply steeped in a culture that I am so intimately familiar with, right? And a religious background and cultural background that I'm so familiar with. Right. These aren't issues that you can solve overnight. They're issues that have been stewing for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, the, the third experience that I had in Afghanistan that was very eye opening was uh, uh, it was a routine strike that was happening in in the Joint Operations Center that I was working out of. Uh, where I, I, I distinctly remember standing there. I think I was t trying to take a break from the work that I was doing. And I was standing in the operations room watching a, a drone strike happen. And I could see a figure on a TV screen and it looked like he was hobbling, right? So look, he had crutches, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, there's a strike called and there's a big black hole where that man was on the screen. And... I look to my left and right and I'm kind of like, was that intentional? Were we supposed to do that? Is this a bad guy? Like what's, what's going on here? And I heard something to the effect of later on, you know, that guy was a bad guy. He wasn't the bad guy we thought he was, but he's probably a bad guy because he's in the, in the wrong place at the wrong time. But ultimately he wasn't the target that they were trying to strike. So this continued to kind of fester, right? Like, what, what am I doing out here? Is, is what we're doing effective? Is it really accomplishing the mission? It, it's really hard to see stuff like this between the Doctors Without Borders event and the strike and kind of reconcile, you know, like, it, it, am I doing my country justice by supporting the mission in this way? Um, so those were the transformative kind of experiences that I was exposed to while, uh, that I can describe at least while I was uh, deployed. How did you reconcile? I didn't because I deployed again <laughs> in, uh, in 2019. I think at the end of the day, the reconciliation came after two really good friends of mine were killed in Manbij, Syria in uh, January of 2019. Um, in a single year, I managed to see the loss of those two friends and I spent the next four months on going on probably four to six hours of sleep a night trying to hunt down the people who had killed them. And it was an, a very extensive ISIS network uh, that was involved in Manbage. And then President Trump at the time withdrew all troops from Syria. 
very publicly. Uh, I believe it was the October timeframe that he withdrew troops. And so I'm sitting at home in my unit's building and I'm watching YouTube videos of Russian troops take over the very base that I had lived at for months on end a handful of months earlier. And suddenly there was this feeling of like, why did my friends die? Because we're leaving, mm. right? We're gone. We're no longer tackling this mission. Did they, did they die for anything good? Right. Um, so I don't know if reconciliation has been made. Uh, I have since, you know, tried and made the decision to, um, go ahead and leave the armed forces and focus on what's coming next in my life. Um, because not, not so much that I don't believe in the United States anymore. I still do very strongly, which is why I still live here. Um, but it's more so of, I don't know if war is the effort that I want to support moving forward for the rest of my life. Right. Like, I don't know if I want to dedicate my entire life to, to supporting a war. That is, that is the question I'm wrangling with you know, every day today. Wow. So let's move forward into your transition into coding and then getting a job at Google and being put onto the team that is working on project Maven. Can you explain a little bit about that and how, I guess not so much about how that looked, but more what, that was i know many people are probably familiar with project maven but i imagine there's a lot of people like myself before i started digging into this that just had heard it in the peripherals we had heard something about it how uh, some googlers were saying google is evil now and <laughs> it stemmed from this thing where they were working with the department of defense but i didn't know all of the details until i actually read your paper and so I'd love to get a bit of background on what you were doing when you went to Google and what this project was. Yeah, so I, I kind of joined Google by a miracle. I didn't think it was going to happen right after, you know, teaching myself how to code for three months. That's typically not a move that that one would anticipate. I was hoping for some kind of like low level full stack developer job somewhere. <laughs> um, but I joined their cloud division under the federal team. Uh, so Google has had a federal team for years and years and years, uh, all the way back to when Google Cloud, as it's known now, uh, was actually the appliance um, department, if you will, right? So it sold the Google search appliance to the government, to the DOD, to agencies, to you know everyone on the face of the earth that, that worked in the national security space. Um, so this team was was actually relatively established, um, unlike, you know, kind of some of the, the public stuff that came out as the, oh, there's this mysterious team that works with the government. That team had been in existence at Google for you know, upwards of 10 years, at least. Um, I was not set as one of the principal engineers on Maven. I was assisting since I was a junior engineer onboarding at the time. Um, and the on-hands portion that I had was basically working out the networking piece, Right, so networking all the backend infrastructure on the Google side to hook into the backend infrastructure that Project Maven owned. Um, so, however, after that, uh, because I was part of the very small pod of people who are part of the DOD and intelligence agency 
um, focused team at Google, I still, you know, maintained full visibility on everything that was going on at Maven because it was uh, the highest dollar project that our team had on the table at the moment. Um, so that was, you know, my mentor at at Google, uh, who was a coworker of mine. He was the principal engineer on Maven, and so I'd oftentimes get pulled into a lot of stuff with him. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if that that answers your question in terms of setting the scene of how I ended up uh, working yeah. on Project Maven. Yeah. Now, can you go into a little bit more depth about Project Maven and what exactly it was? Yeah, um, and all of this is public, so it's not it's not necessarily like you know new or groundbreaking. But some of these details are are kind of misted over in in some some uh, situations. So Google was one of the many vendors that was engaged on Project Maven. Um, there were a ton of other vendors that were operating on a bunch of different platforms, and ultimately, what Google got assigned to was the Whammy platform, uh, wide area motion imagery. Um, and this platform is a non-lethal platform that sits, I don't know how many miles above the Earth's surface, but think of it as kind of a blimp, right? So it sits pretty high up. Um, and it's designed to do things like overall pattern analysis of, you know, any video imagery on a given location, right? So it could be weather, it could be cloud cover, it could be down to like a, a general kind of movement of people so it can discern crowds. Um, and it can discern like general traffic patterns. Uh, but what it's not designed to do is get super in the weeds when it comes to like down to the pixel by pixel of like, can I find a person who's holding an RPG missile? For example, <laughs> that's not <clears throat> what the, uh, the whammy platform was ever really in intentionally designed to do. Um, but I very quickly found that that is exactly what was being asked of us uh, within mm -hmm. the scope of Project Maven is, hey, we need to be able to determine guys on motorcycles. We need to be able to determine guys that might be holding RPGs on motorcycles. Can we discern if there are any RPGs mounted on trucks uh, that are driving around? And so suddenly, and, and it, it was probably an innocent kind of mistake on, on behalf of the entire team, a platform that was meant to do kind of wider level more, uh, you know, 3,000 foot view level pattern analysis, where a lot could have been done there from a machine learning perspective, using computer vision, was now being used in more of what we call a TUAV uh, application or a tactical um, unmanned aerial vehicle uh, platform. Now, those platforms were being worked on. Those are the lethal platforms. Those are the platforms that, you know, the MQ-9, Reaper, and all that, that everyone knows about. Those are the platforms that carry the lethal payloads that conduct drone strikes. There were other companies that were working on those platforms alongside Google, but Google was not touching those platforms. So it was not touching directly any lethal platforms. But the kind of understanding was, <laughs> if you're working in this general space of you know, overhead imagery, uh, the overhead imagery is going to go to ultimately some kind of lethal end. Right. Uh, because that's what the DOD does. Right. Overseas is they they protect the nation by eliminating enemy enemies of the United States. Um, so that's kind of in a, in a nutshell what Project Maven looked like and what it did. Um, there's even articles out there that go down and list all the different like types of categories that 
uh, you know, the algorithms were being sought to build out. I'm not going to go into that because there are actually so many categories. Uh, but the examples that I gave were, were a couple, um, couple ones that, that were in discussion and were in development. So it was like this unspoken understanding that this isn't ideal. We're not really trying to use this technology to find people, except we are doing that. It's like, this isn't the technology that you would think you would want to be employing for certain things, like finding out if there's an RPG being carried on a motorcycle. But since we can try, we're going to try and see if we can figure it out. Yeah, I mean, it was the classic <clears throat> classic scenario of scope creep, right? So mm -hmm. now as, as somewhat, I've been in the machine learning world now for five to six years, uh, and it was a classic, classic scenario of scope creep, right? You scope a particular project to perform machine learning to do a specific function, and then, of course, the, the requirement or the need changes so rapidly because that's kind of how the DoD works. The mission changes so quickly uh, mm -hmm. that you start at point A and you end up at point Z and you don't realize how, you know, it, the, the technical task essentially creeps so far over. Um, there was, of course, a, a ton that could have been done on that kind of whammy level of looking at, you know, doing weather analysis or cloud cover analysis. Yes, that would have maybe ended up enabling lethal platforms to go out, right? But one of the biggest issues with lethal platforms is cloud, cloud cover, right? We can't go out if there's a ton of cloud cover because we can't see what's below us. Something like Whammy could have helped enable that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a classic, classic kind of scenario in my mind uh, of, of an ML project that kind of is experienced that, that scope creep. So I want to get into what happened when this was exposed. But before we do that, I think there's an interesting question here around how you feel about the use of AI in warfare in general. Yep. Yeah, so this has taken a lot of, you know, thinking on my part. Um, because there were a lot of questions throughout this Project Maven experience that it was, a, it was a whole new level of questioning, right? So while I was in Afghanistan, I was questioning the nature of the mission and how I was supporting it, but I wasn't questioning the technology that I was providing. When I moved over to Google and was the technology provider, at that point I realized not only did I have questions about war, but I also had questions about the use of technology in war. And the ultimate conclusion that I came to is this. War is inevitable. War has been happening since the beginning of history of mankind. Uh, we can argue left and right whether war is actually decreasing or increasing over time. I personally think it's just the nature of war is changing, right? It doesn't look like the traditional World War I, World War II that we're used to. It's, it's evolving. Um, and whether we like it or not, those folks at Langley Air Force Base are going to continue to fly overhead missions and analyze imagery. And right now, the way it's done is it's manual, right? So you literally have, and I, I got to sit side by side with these folks, people on shifts, on 12-hour shifts that are going through backlogs and backlogs of overhead imagery video, trying to discern threats 
and trying to track targets and trying to do a bunch of different things. And they're doing it manually. And it's Mm -hmm. so prone to human error. So at the end of the day, if warfare, if I go off of the premise that warfare is somewhat inevitable and it's going to happen, I would rather have AI be a part of it to make it a bit more precise for the sake of reducing the loss of civilian human life, right? Mm-hmm. So that was the, the use case that we were kind of staring in the face by working at Project Maven. The task that we were assigned and this is an example that I talk about in the article that Whammy could be used for and is often used for is situations like schools, right? So it's very, very common for the Taliban to use, especially girls' schools, as places to hide missiles underground or hide underground, uh, you know, any type of ammunition or supplies that they have. So being able to use Whammy to analyze the crowds and the amount of foot traffic that goes in and out of a school might very well tip and tip off, essentially, hey, there's some shady stuff happening at this girls' school, but also there are an average of 20 to 50 girls that come in and out of that school every day. So we have to be conscious of how we approach this target, right? Um, so at the end of the day, I come to the stance of, it is inevitable that AI and warfare are going to come together. Uh, We're already seeing that with China. We're already seeing that with Russia. They've already conducted, I mean, the Russian troll farm kind of scenario that we saw during the elections in 2016. Perfect example. A lot of that was automated, right? Not, Mm -hmm. it wasn't like, you know, hundreds of people sitting there manning every single persona. They had managed to automate a lot of that process. So it's happening already. And I think the question is, with companies like Google and the ethics that they do hold themselves to, are they going to have a seat at the table or not, right? And I argue that they must or else someone else is going to fill that seat at the table and that someone else might not be asking the questions of ethics that Google would actually bring to light and bring to focus within the DOD because that's exactly what happened uh, with Project Maven. Even though the fallout was ugly, Uh, It was very public. It was very aggressive. Um, At the end of the day, you saw the Joint AI Center hire a chief AI ethics officer, uh, Dr. Patel, who I actually adore. She is awesome. Um, And after she was hired, they established their own AI ethics principles. I don't think that would have come about without what happened with Project Maven happening the way it did. But it definitely could have happened a little better. For everyone else, if that makes sense, with a little less drama. So, in a way, it's like not necessarily choosing lesser of two evils, but just making sure, hey, if this is going to happen one way or the other, let's at least have some voices in there that we would hope are going to raise different issues and pump the brakes at certain moments when certain ethical issues are coming up. And it's fascinating to me because there are so many applications of machine learning and there are so many ways that we're seeing it being used and different applications for each piece of this warfare. And then there is, I, I spoke on this podcast, uh, a few months ago with Wanda 
who is advocating for the outright ban of AI that has no human in the loop and gets to decide who dies and who lives. And there are pieces of this puzzle that I feel like we can agree on that shouldn't be okay. And I went way into a discussion with them on that. And, and the key takeaway was, look, there's certain things in warfare that we as a collective society, human, human race, do not agree on, whether that's landmines or chemical, bomb or chemical warfare. And they want to add this to the list. They want to make sure that if a drone is flying overhead and it, it's equipped with computer vision, and it sees and it has a facial scan and says there's a 98% chance that this is the target we're looking for, somebody has to be it clicking the button saying yes, fire, or no, do not. So that feels like something that is okay. We, it feels like something that we can agree is, is what we want taken off of the table. Uh, but I completely understand your point of view from this side. Like, look, war is inevitable. It is happening continuously throughout history. And this is now the changing landscape of war as much as we do not want it to be happening. So these are very difficult ethical questions to chew on. And it is incredible that you have been thinking about them, you've lived them, and you have this insight. So now let's jump to the backlash on Project Maven and how it came out and what happened and your experience of when it was made public. What happened there? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> just to, to jump back to the point that you made, uh, I did just publish an article on Medium that talks about how uh, MLOps is essentially equivalent to performing ethical AI. And I actually analyze and bring out the Joint AI Center and uh, the um, Office of the Director of National Intelligence's Responsible AI Guidelines. And both include something to the effect of a human needs to be in the loop and or machine learning needs to be human-centered in the nature of its mm -hmm. design. So I think that's also important, you know, to to kind of argue to the point uh, that your previous podcast guest had had made. Um, the the other question that I would argue there, though, is that is counting on humans having what we perceive to be the perfect judgment of when to pull exactly. the trigger, right? Which was and something that, else. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That is the conundrum that, as someone who has seen combat, as someone who has been involved in that. I would argue that we need a pause on that for a second and consider mm -hmm. it because I don't think it's as, per I don't think it's as perfect as we think it is uh, to have a human necessarily in the loop all the time. Well, it reminds me a lot of this scenario of the self-driving cars and how self-driving right. cars are going to radically reduce the amount of accidents, but they're not going to extinguish them altogether. But because of a self-driving car being so much better performing than a human, like a self-driving car doesn't, doesn't get texts or doesn't have a bad day and be thinking about something and daydreaming while they're driving. So it, 
it is not eradicating completely this problem of accidents, but it is going to be better than the humans. And I look at that a little bit like, okay, if we bring that or we extrapolate it into other areas like this, where we think, okay, let's get a human in the loop. But if a human is going off of very little data also, or they're just looking at a screen and they're looking at the photo that this computer vision algorithm is taking into account, and you see there that it says like 98% accuracy that this is the person you're looking for, of course, you're going to kind of say, well, all right, cool. Yes, press that button. Let's, let's fire that missile. And so there is, there's still a lot of red flags around this. It's yeah. very, very nuanced. Yeah. I think the human in the loop thing is going to have to stay regardless, right? But I don't know how long, I don't know if that's going to be the permanent fix, right? Mm. Uh, so I, I, I could see a world in which that changes uh, for, for better or for worse, uh, for as scary as that might sound, um, change is inevitable. And I think I could see a world where, where that becomes, comes the case. Um, sorry to distract. I know you had a question about the, <laughs> the backlash. So, um, initially, you know, the, the, the content started coming out and there were two Googlers in particular, uh, that are in the news, you know, left and right, who were very outspoken about uh, the Project Maven, uh, kind of the nature of the project. Um, and initially it was kind of like, okay, this might be an interesting thing that we, you know, have one kind of semi-confrontational session about at TGIF, uh, which is the, the weekly gatherings that they do at Google uh, for all employees internally, and then it's going to blow over and we're just going to, to move on. And that's, that's actually the opposite of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, I think overall, from my perspective, what was hardest with the backlash was that there is a small community uh, of current service members and prior service members from armies and, and navies and air forces all over the world uh, at Google, and that community is called VetNet. It's very small, um, but it's designed as to, you know, be a support community for people who have been in the service, uh, for people who still are in the service, no matter where you are in the world. And this group of people, which included myself, I think we're hurting the most throughout this Project Maven debacle, because what didn't happen at the end of the day and we had plenty of opportunities to do this as a company, was have open town hall discussions between people who had fought alongside these overhead platforms and or had worked with them directly and the people who had ethical questions. Because the people who are asking the questions of whether this is ethical or not and were speaking out against Project Maven, they were asking the right questions, right? The assumption that I think was underlying the way in which they went about doing what they were doing is this is whoever is driving this effort is 100% evil. They don't have the same questions I do. And therefore, we must eliminate this opportunity and eliminate the customer altogether. And the reality is I'm the customer, right? So not only was I the Googler that was sitting there working on the project, but I'm also the customer. And so there's a bit, you know, again, hundreds of us at Google who are in the same shoes that I am, and nobody had a chance 
to reconcile what I know everyone wrangles with who has been in combat day in and day out, which is the ethical questions around war, right? These are the overall big ethical questions of like, is what we're doing right? Are we really solving a problem? At this point with Afghanistan, it had been almost 20 years of war. And most, a lot of veterans in that community had spent plenty of time in Afghanistan and lost plenty of friends there. So there was this reckoning that we could have come to together at a company that I honestly expected of Google as a company to immediately act on, which is, okay, we have ethical questions over here. We've got this community of people who are intimately familiar with the problem over here. Let's bring them together and let's talk. And that never happened. And so what ended up happening was it was a a, a massive tidal wave of just not just shame and hate on the project itself, but as I mentioned in the article, shame and hate against people who had ever served, right? So there were memes put out on meme gen. Uh, There were, you know, long threads of posts that I tried to stay away from because I was already having a very hard time mentally coming out of my deployment in Afghanistan, stepping right into this, I was already mentally having a hard time kind of reckoning with all this. Um, My exit to Google was supposed to be my exit, right? It was supposed to be my way to get into the commercial space, see what life outside of war looks like. And then I end up, you know, smack in the middle of Project Maven. Um, And there was nothing we could do about it, right? Because it was so overwhelmingly popular opinion that Maven and the nature of the work was evil and whoever associated that with that and whoever complied to work on that was also evil, that it left us, the humans that were working on it and or the humans who know those platforms and missions very well, kind of dumbfounded. And at the end of the end, at the end of the day, not just dumbfounded, but completely unsupported, right? So there were there were a lot of people who left Google um, due to the Project Maven debacle, to include Eric Schmidt himself, right? Mm. Um, he silently left the board of directors during this period. And it was due to the fact that there didn't seem to be a cohesive message from leadership at the time on the issue. Right. It was just kind of like putting out fires and batting them out and putting it. It's like Groundhog Day. Right. Like trying to bat everything back into their holes uh, without really any cohesive philosophical argument of, hey, we're stepping away from this because we believe X, Y and Z or, hey, no, we are going to engage with the U.S. government just like we engage with governments all over the world, of which Google does right now. They have a global government team that is very entrenched in a bunch of other governments all over the world. Um, And we are going to have a seat at the table when it comes to technology use of warfare, because we believe that strongly in ethical use of technology and warfare, because the use of technology and warfare is inevitable. Whether the big three or big four tech companies step away from it or not, someone else is going to fill the void. Um, so yeah, the backlash was pretty intense. Um, there was a, there were many, many nights where I found myself wondering where I had ended up. 
right? Like mm. I felt like I'd ended up right where I started. Uh, instead of walking away from war, I was now at the crosshairs of war and technology. And I was completely fraught with like, what do I do? I don't even know what to do. I know that the reaction that Google is having as a data-driven company, I didn't believe in the reaction that that came out of that uh, in terms of the company's response to the ethical objections and the ethical objection objectors. Um, and so coincidentally, you know, a couple months after Maven happened, I got an offer to deploy to Iraq and I took it. Um, and I think I took it just because I felt like I had found myself in the same conundrum that I was sitting in in Afghanistan. It was just at Google. Uh, mm. So I thought, if there's any way out, maybe this maybe this deployment will clarify things for me. Um, so yeah, it was it was tough to to handle the backlash from from Project Maven on so many levels. Okay, so I want to go into something that you're talking about here, which is what was the hardest part about this is that those who had served and do understand all of these nuances and all of this gray area of war, they were not given a voice. And that's really where you feel like things could have been done better from Google's side or just in this whole debauchery. It would have been nice to have heard from people. But then you also are talking about how everyone that was part of service, they became ostracized. So in a way, like, were you hiding that and you didn't want to step up and say things to help get this, these ideas across and say, look, these, these questions, I fully agree that we should be asking and I appreciate you for asking them. But at the same time, we have to recognize that it's not just binary. And it's not like we can just um, say yes or no to this. We have to have a longer discussion about it because it is nuanced. That never happened. What would you have liked to have seen? So this is one of, I have a lot of regrets in life. Um, and a lot of them stem from this deep-seated training that you receive in army training, which is leadership training, right? When you see something, you say something, you step up, but you also offer a solution to a problem when you see a problem arise. I have, and people could probably still find these documents, I have a draft town hall proposal that is probably still floating in the Google ether somewhere that I had written up and was actually planning to send to Vint Cerf, <laughs> uh, who is the uh, chief evangelist at Google. Um, with a very storied background with the government and the DOD, um, trying to propose essentially to stand up a few venues to have these town halls, um, to bring the voices of veterans and current service members to the table to start shedding a little bit more informed light on some of the questions that the objectors were asking and raising. And I never sent it. And I don't know if I never sent it because I was afraid of losing my job. I don't know if I never sent it because um, I didn't believe in myself. I didn't think that I could actually pull it off. There was also a big part of me that was very afraid to send it because a lot of us who have been exposed to warfare 
a lot of warfare is classified. <laughs> and so this brings the conundrum of how do I communicate some of the scenarios and situations that I've been in to these people so that they can understand the extreme nature of the problem of trying to protect the U.S. from afar, right? Uh, that I felt like a lot of veterans might have been uncomfortable speaking about. Um, there's also the big element that I was extremely aware of, especially, you know, with some of the, the death that I had seen in Afghanistan of PTSD, right? So mm -hmm. having and forcing veterans to speak about their, their experiences can sometimes be very traumatizing. Um, these are not excuses for my uh, lack of initiative to try to bring forth a solution that could have arguably brought these two sides that constantly seem to be warring against one another, which is the U.S. government and the defense industry, and then the Silicon Valley kind of tech uh, cabal, so to speak. Um, and, and that's something that I regret not doing. Uh, because in looking back, I feel like that might have maybe greased the skids a bit more to end up where Google as a company, company has ended up now, which they're taking that stance of, no, we are going to be present in the government and national security space. We are going to have a voice at the table. We are going to offer our technology and we are going to provide guidance on the best use of it. Um, this, is a, this has been a marked change that I've seen, especially over the past year. Um, but it, it seemed like that change was so far away when I was, you know, steeped in the moment of the backlash of Maven, right? Uh, it, it didn't seem like that that was ever going to come, right? The, the whole Maven contract was canceled. Uh, a bunch of people were, you know, fired that were, you know, raised those ethical objections that I thought maybe didn't need to be fired um, because the objections they brought up were valid. Um and it just didn't seem like there was going to be any good solution moving forward for the team hmm. um, in the moment. Yeah, it seems like you enjoy in some way, or I don't know if it's enjoy, or you just have found yourself taking the hard route. You went to military school in Boulder, and that was a hard one. And then you came back, and you have this military background and you're now in the silicon valley life which is like you said it's almost diametrically opposed i'm sitting here listening to you and saying like go to texas and just be a hero that you are <laughs> right like they'll they'll raise you up on the um on a chair or, and so i i really appreciate you and it's it's very courageous what you've gone through and how you are talking about it and just bringing some things to light that i never would have known about I did not realize any of this transpired. I just, like I said, I heard things about it. Very, very faint things. I would just catch pieces here and there, but I wouldn't necessarily be able to fully understand not only the gravity of the situation, but the nuances and what it was like for somebody inside of Google to have been going through this and been on the other side and and it's always easy to spin like a very simple narrative. Like we, we as Google should not do this because it's not ethically, uh, it, it's not in our ethics. But then I think what we've done in the last hour is really look through 
and talk about these ethics and, and show that it is very gray and there is not a clear black and white. And this needs to be thought about as these questions are being raised. So I've got one last question for you and we're going to end it after this, but I want to know, Amina, are you a robot? Ah, uh, no. I think I'm, I'm the opposite of a robot. I would, I would like to think anyways, I believe in robots, uh, but I'm very much human on the inside. So uh, I, I'm supporting the robot army, however, uh, with, with a very human perspective, for sure. Amazing. Well, thank you for coming on here and opening my mind to all of this that I just had no idea about. It's really been a great conversation and I appreciate you taking the time to do it. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Demetrios. I appreciate it.